This morning we come to the last of the Ten Commandments. It's been a little bit of a journey. A journey not of ten sermons, but of eleven. Because if you'll remember, we didn't start in Exodus chapter 20. We actually started in Matthew's Gospel. And there Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, said this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. We began our understanding of the Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments. We began that with Jesus letting us know that it was not just about external adherence. It was about our hearts. And we're going to discover a little bit more about that this morning as we look at the Tenth Commandment. Now, uh, I guess we could go ahead and just give you a test and see how many of you remember them, but I'll help you out here. So let's review. The first four commandments had to do with God himself. And that is we're to have no other gods before him. We're not to have any idols. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. And we are not to, and we are to... Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Okay, those are the first four. Okay, the fifth commandment had to do with our relationship with our parents, which is pretty easy. Remember that one, honor your father and mother, right? All right, then we go to the next four commandments. These deal with our relationships with other people. So we're not to commit murder. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to steal, and we're not to give false testimony. Okay, now, last week we dealt with that. We talked about giving false testimony, not only in a court of law, but giving false testimony with our lives. And one of the things we, we stressed was that, that God wants us to speak with integrity. He, in other words, to not take lying lightly. And I want to just tap on something right here because it was interesting. During the course of the week, I greatly appreciate it when people interact with me about uh, a message. And it might be because they heard something that didn't even sit well with them. And so I was, was having this interaction and uh, this, uh, you know, challenge on this because one of the things that I said using uh, two scriptures, one from Exodus and one from Joshua, was that there, are, there may be times when it is acceptable to lie for a greater good. The examples, as you'll remember, were the Hebrew midwives who were instructed to kill the male children and then they didn't do it, and then they lied and made, made a story up about, um, you know, that they, the Hebrew women were so strong that they gave birth before the midwives could ever show up. Then the other was had to do with Rahab in the city of Jericho. As um, the spies came in, the Hebrew spies, Rahab hid them. And then uh, when the soldiers came to discover where they were, she said they've already left, they left the city. Okay, that was kind of the, the basis for what I said. Now, the challenge was, is it ever really okay, acceptable to lie? That's, that's an interesting debate. However, I, so that sent me back. I did a little more study, and here's what I want to say, because this is what you need to hear. We have these two examples. Sometimes scripture is descriptive. In other words, it tells us what happened. Other times scripture, scripture is prescriptive. Uh, in other words, it tells us what to do or not to do. In the instance in Exodus and Joshua, they were certainly descriptive. It told us exactly what happened and told us the results. 
However, this is what you need to hear. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture are we either instructed to or commended for lying. Nowhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that God hates lies. He hates deceit. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. God is the author of truth. And therefore, if we're to be like God, we are to be a matter of truth. So it would be very dangerous for us to take two examples from the Old Testament that are descriptive and actually make something prescriptive out of it. Does that make sense? Okay, I have actually elaborated on this a lot further uh, on a blog post because I knew we wouldn't have a ton of time this morning. And, uh, and you can access that through our church's website. So if you want to go read a little bit more about it and some of the, the background, I'm just giving you kind of the condensed version of that. Okay, the last, test, the last commandment is different from all the others. Why is it different? Because it doesn't forbid us to do anything, and it doesn't call us to do anything. The last commandment has to do completely with the attitude of our hearts. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And this is what we read there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. If we're going to understand that passage, then we need to understand what the word covet means. We've got an English definition of that. But what did it mean? If we go back and we look into the Hebrew, what, what did that word mean? Well, the word actually means to desire. And it can be good or bad depending on the context that it's given in. So the word means to desire. Here, the word means that coveting is discontented desire. Let's get this, okay? It's discontented desire. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's let's use an example. We'll just make something up. Let's suppose one of you this week uh, pulled up in the church parking lot in a brand new car. Still had the new car smell, the new car shine. You pulled up in it, and I went out and I saw your car, and I liked your car. I really admired that car. Now, let's take it a step further. Let's just say that you said, hey, Jimmy, come on over here. Have a seat on it. And I sat in that nice, plush, leather seat, smelling that new car smell, You said, hey, let's check out the sound system. And you had a super-duper Bose sound system package, surround sound. It was incredible. And you said, oh, that's not all. Let's look at all the other bells and whistles, the GPS and all these other things. And even more, you said, why don't you, listen, you're in it. Why don't you go ahead and just take it around the block a couple of times. Just see how it handles, see how it drives. Now, here's the deal. I could admire that car. And I could even have some level of desire of that car short of coveting. Here's the difference. The difference is this. You come up and pull up in that new car, I could be really happy for you. I mean, I could could say, yeah, I am so glad that you got this car. And I could even want a car like that. As a matter of fact, 
Seeing you drive something like that might motivate me to work harder, to be a little more responsible, to save a little more money so that one day I could have a car like that. In other words, I'm fine with you having it. Even though I might like to have something like it, it's not burning in me. It didn't set up this spark ablaze in me. In other words, I have what we could call a contented desire. I'm satisfied for you to have that thing, even if I don't have it. Discontented desire is not that. And so let's begin with this. Coveting has to do with the intent of the heart. Coveting has to do with the intent of the heart. You can have desire, but the intent of the heart determines whether or not it is coveting. Proverbs 4.23. Today is my daughter's 24th birthday And her life verse is Proverbs 4.23. And it says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because everything you do flows from your heart. That's why Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, love your neighbors yourself. The entire law and prophets hang on these two. Because everything we do flows from the heart. Now, I can't see into your heart. Only God can see into your heart. If you say, oh, Jimmy, I, 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 really, I really like that thing you have, your house, your car, your, your TV, your uh, tools, whatever it might be. You could be very, very happy that I have those things, or you could be very, very covetousness, and I wouldn't know the difference necessarily. But God does know. And he sees when desire has sparked a flame in you that's going to become a wildfire of covetousness in your life. What you see in another person's life can, not necessarily will, but can make you discontent with what you have. Dissatisfied. Of course, coveting can also lead to all kinds of other sins. That's what we see in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. But this is critically important, and you need to understand this. Based on what Jesus said, based on this, the Tenth Commandment, The sin is not only in the act that follows the evil desire. The sin is in the desire itself. If there's no outward manifestation of it, the sin is in the desire itself. It's a heart issue. It has to do with your attitude towards God, your attitude towards others, and your attitude towards stuff. It has to do with your priorities. What's most important to you? And it's a struggle as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember, Eve's in the garden. Adam's there with her. There's the tree. God said, don't eat from that tree. Here's the serpent. The serpent comes slithering around, and he's communicating with Eve. And he's basically telling her, you know what? God's holding out on you. You've got, all, you've got all this, but God's holding out on you. There's something he doesn't want you to have. 
He's shortchanging you. God's not fair. You deserve more. You deserve better. And Eve took a bite of the lie before she ever took a bite of the fruit. Here's what we read there in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. So think about it. When did the sin actually occur? Did it occur when she handed the forbidden fruit to Adam? Did it occur when the piece that she had bitten was swallowed? Did it occur when she put the forbidden fruit up to her lip? Did it occur when she picked it off the tree? Or did it occur when she took a look at that fruit, having heard Satan's lies and desired it in her heart? My guess is, based on what Jesus said and and based on what we read here in the 10th commandment, that it was very likely it was birthed in her heart. She listened to the lie. God's holding out on you. God's not being fair to you. God's not giving you a square deal. She listened to that lie. And she believed it, and her desire became for the very thing that God said no to. Sometimes, maybe you've seen this with your kids. They're okay until you tell them no about something, and then they're all over it. So we can kind of understand this, this tendency. We think we're being cheated out of something. We think we're being robbed because, no, can't go there, can't do that. I mean, I've actually seen people, you know, no trespassing, they'll just step over the line. I mean, just to do it. It, it's, it. It's something in this fallen human nature that causes us to want to rebel in this way. We live in a society, of course, that are filled with rules and regulations. Quite frankly, I think too many rules and regulations, but many of them are absolutely necessary. Why? Because of the condition of the human heart. Because if we didn't put the barriers up, people would just go absolutely haywire and and things would be completely, completely chaotic. Jeremiah says of the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart's desire, the heart desires what's not ours and When our heart desires what's not ours, then we become dissatisfied with what we have. And our eyes are drawn away from our blessings to the blessings of others. And then we begin to compare what they've got and what I've got. And when we begin to compare what we've got, man, that looks so small, so dingy, so worn. Compared to what they've got, wow, if I only had what they had, then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied, then I'd be content. And we might, we might think that, you know, life's unfair. We might even think God's unfair. That somehow this is all his fault that they've got something that we don't have. And this spark, this desire catches a blaze. And it didn't take long 
Uh, yesterday, um, doing a little bit of yard work out in the yard, and I had some, some limbs and debris and stuff like that. I also had some old uh, gas and oil mixture that I used in my weed eater. Okay, it's about time to get the weed eater going again, so I had to get rid of that oil and gas mixture. And so uh, I went ahead and, like a, you know, I, I don't want to waste anything, so I just kind of poured it over the wood. And then I wisely went and got a little charcoal starter, kind of made a little line, lit it, and I went to get the water hose. Always a wise thing to have, Andy. And about halfway there, as I've watched a little bit of a flame go over towards the wood pile, about halfway there, I heard that wondrous sound that men love to hear. Woof! And there it went. And that's kind of what happens when desire is birthed in our heart. It's a little flame. Pretty soon we're absolutely consumed with covetousness. You know what? We may never take that thing that belongs to someone. We may never take it. We may never touch it. But there inside there's a lack of contentment, a, a hunger. And we're convinced that unless we have what they have, we are not going to be happy. We're not going to be satisfied. We've got to have their house, their car, their boat, their TV, their spouse, their children, their life. So what's the answer to this covetousness, to this uh, discontented desire? Well, the answer to coveting is contentment. That's the answer. If you want not to be covetous, then you need to be content. Let me share a few scriptures with you that, that back this up. This is what Paul said as he wrote to the church in Philippi. He said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Wow. That in and of itself is huge. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what's happening in my life, no matter how good things are or how bad things are, no matter what I feel like I've been cheated out of and somebody else got the credit, whatever the circumstances, I've learned how to be content. He said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Let's move on to what he wrote to his young protege, Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, we read, keep your lives free of the love of money. For the love of money, oh, excuse me, keep your eyes free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. We will never, listen, We will never find contentment until we truly embrace that God is enough. We'll never be content unless God is enough. 
Jesus put it this way. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food or the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you trust the Lord to meet your needs? I'm not saying to give you the house on the hill, the brand new Cadillac. I'm not saying to give you that nice bass boat to go out fishing in or that pontoon boat to go out with your family or you know, whatever it is. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying do you trust God to meet your needs? Do you trust him to give you what you need? Whether you're on top of the world or the world is on top of you, is God enough for you? If all things were stripped away and all you had was God, would you be content? Can I make a confession to you? I'm still struggling with that. I'm still struggling with that. I want God to be enough. That if, if it were all gone, if, if I had a, a Job incident, that I'd still be content. But I realize that in this land of plenty in which we live, and we, folks, we live in a land of plenty. Let's face it. Take the poorest among us, and, and, and you could find millions in the world that would gladly switch places with them. That's, that's not saying we should do nothing to help the poor. We should or be compassionate with the poor. I'm just saying that our idea of poverty doesn't compare to the third world's idea of poverty, nor does our idea of prosperity compare with the third world's idea of prosperity. We live in a land of plenty, and yet we often live dissatisfied and discontented lives because we secretly crave what someone else has. Within us, there's a discontented desire. Something that says, if I only had that, if I only had what they had, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be content when the truth is, if you're not content with God alone, you will not be content with God and everything else. This is how Jesus put it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So here's the point. We're not content because our hearts yearn for that which cannot satisfy. That's why we're not content. That's why we covet. Because our hearts yearn for that which can never truly satisfy. And so the question for you this morning is very simple, very straightforward. There's, there, there's nothing magical, mystical about it. The question is, is God enough for you? If you took away the bank account, if you took away the house, if you took away the car, is God enough for you? Because we live in this time of prosperity, it's hard for us. You and I are trained from very early on to to be consumers. And we're trained to be dissatisfied with what we have. Uh, we, we, we buy a car. I, I mean, let's, um, last year, got a car, okay? It's a nice car, very happy with it. I'm still very happy with it. And it'll warn me if I'm backing up, if, if there's cross traffic, it'll warn me. And it'll actually, uh, it'll actually slow down if you're on cruise control. If there's something in front of you, it'll slow down. And it'll even stop if it has to. Well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm awfully safe here on the highway. And now they've got these, it's got like radar. The next, the next model's got radar and everything. It tells you whoever's around you. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I'm thinking, my goodness, I have some primitive vehicle. I'm just one step up from Fred Flintstone. Oh, I'm not. The only reason there was any discontent in me is because I saw that silly commercial. That's the world in which we live. A world that says, don't be satisfied with what you have. There's more, there's better, there's nicer, there's newer. If you don't believe me, just look at your neighbor. Look at your friend across the street. And if they're not doing any better than you, look at the big athletes. Look at the movie stars, the people on TV. If your friends won't cause you to covet, then look at those who will. That's what the world's telling you. Satan's still whispering the same old lie. It's not enough. God's holding out on you. It's not fair. But here's the truth. Either God is enough or God isn't enough. Some of you have discovered that God is enough. There were times when you've had things stripped away from you, time when your security was just absolutely ripped apart and you had nothing but God and you discovered in that time He is enough. Some of you have never discovered that. Some of you know what it is to have discontented desire. You live with it every day. You're jealous, you're envious, you're covetousness. You're looking at what others have. You, you don't count your blessings. You count your, your failings. You count what everybody else has that you don't have. I'm here to tell you that we have a God who is enough. He knows what you need. He cares for you. 
And he's meeting your needs. That's the kind of God that we have. But we also have a God who wants to meet your biggest need. Your greatest need. What is that? New car? New house? No. Your greatest need is a personal relationship with with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's your greatest need. To be honest, apart from that, nothing else matters. When you stand before the Lord, He's not going to say, Hey, listen, hey, tell me about that nice bass boat you had. You remember that fishing trip you went out and you caught all those fish? Yeah, that was me. I gave you those. I was just so happy with you and your boat. I just wanted to make sure you had that. God's not going to sit back and go, Hey, listen, just kind of, kind of walk me through that nice house that you had. Just kind of walk me room by room. Just don't miss, don't skip a detail. Tell me about the carpet. Tell me about the paint. Tell me about all the furnishings in your house. You think God's interested in that stuff? No. What God is interested in is the condition of your soul. What would you do with my son? Because ultimately, let me tell you, you brought nothing into the world and you're taking nothing with you. When you stand before God, the only thing that will matter is what you do with my son. What you do with Jesus. Many of you made that decision. Some of you made it many years ago. Jesus Christ I believe that God sent his son to die on the cross for, for not just for the world, but for me. So that if I turn from my sins and turn to him, if I believe in Jesus, then I wouldn't perish, but I'd have everlasting life with him. Some of you made that decision, but some of you haven't. I just want to say with all my heart this morning, if you haven't made that decision for Jesus... And I say this with the deepest amount of love and concern for you. This is not in a condemning way. If Jesus Christ is not your Savior and Lord, you have no hope of heaven. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. A place of darkness and burning with no end. That's not meant to scare you. I just want to be honest with you this morning. I want you to understand that you have an opportunity to step forward even today and say, I know, God, that I am a sinner and I know that I'm separated from you and I know that I have no hope of heaven apart from you. So this day, having been drawn by your grace, This day I come to say, Lord, I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in him and him alone for my salvation. And God, I want you to be enough. I've been chasing all these other things like the pagans, but today I want you to be enough. How do you do that? We've got some men and women in this room right now who would love to help you with that. To let you know how you can have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. And as we sing our final song this morning, I want to invite you to come forward and receive the greatest gift in the world, the gift that will satisfy you forever.
Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this word. We recognize that our hearts do crave many things that, quite frankly, aren't even good for us. But even the good things, God, we crave them for the wrong reason. Because we feel like it's going to satisfy some deep need in us, some longing in us. The truth is, Lord, it won't satisfy. It's only a temporary fix, a band-aid on a cancer. But Lord, today, if there are those who've come who need your son Jesus, I pray that nothing will hinder them from coming to you today, that not fear or, 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 or guilt or, or shame or anything God would hinder them for coming and receiving the greatest gift, the gift of your son. Lord, I pray also for those who are struggling, who are believers in Jesus Christ, but their life is really wrapped up in the world and wrapped up by the world. And they're pursuing so many things and live so dissatisfied. And today, Lord, they simply want to come to you and to kneel and pray before you and say, God, I want a new start. I want a fresh beginning. God, I want you to be enough. Lord, if there are those that you're calling to be a part of the life of this church, then I pray that you would lead them to respond. So, Lord, whatever it is that you call upon us to do today, our answer is yes. In Jesus' name, amen.